pray before we get started this morning. Heavenly Father, we love you today. Father, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, you are our rock and our fortress, our strength and our shield. You are our hope. You are you are our everything, Father. Father, today we come with a desire to learn from your word. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to come and let our hearts be humble before you. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives and make our hearts open and receptive to your word and your will. Father, today help us not to resist and reject what you have for us. God, help us to take it and apply it to our lives. Help us to change where we need to change. Help us to surrender where we need to surrender and help us to believe what we need to believe. Let your Holy Spirit come and take your word and, and use it mightily in our hearts and in our minds to strengthen us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to change us. Fill me with the Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech so that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Guide us to respond to your word and your spirit in ways. Bring glory to your name and testify to the fact that Jesus is Lord over our lives. We love you, Lord. Have your way in each heart and in each life. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The Bible tells us humans love to proclaim their own goodness. We see this in our day when people say things like, well, I may not be perfect, but I'm really not that bad. There is even a, a movement among some of the more outspoken atheists in our world where they, they seek to demonstrate that they are good without God. The point of all of this is to show that mankind really isn't all that bad. Sure, we have our flaws, but these flaws aren't enough to cause us to need God, to need Jesus or to need the gospel. And this idea brings us to the myth we're going to examine today. Good people go to heaven. Let's, let's say, for the sake of argument, that this myth is true. The statement is true that good people go to heaven and then bad people go to hell. Now, if good people go to heaven... That does bring up a question. I mean, how, how good do you really have to be to go to heaven? And what is the standard of goodness? I mean, who defines what good really is? I mean, does, is goodness a matter of, of I define my goodness and you define your goodness and as long as I feel I'm good and you feel you're good, we're all good? Or is there, is there maybe an absolute standard of, of goodness that we can examine ourselves in light of to see if, in fact, we are good? And, and, and as people, as human beings, if we're not perfect, then how, how bad could we be, really? The Bible says something about the goodness, the natural goodness of man that is challenging and important. The Bible says that, that we are all like an unclean thing. And all our, our righteousness are like filthy rags. 
And we all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now, with righteousness, I want you to think about that as goodness. These aren't the bad things that we do that are being described here. These are, in fact, the good things that we do. These are the things that we would look at to say, I'm not that bad. I'm good without God. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, says that our goodness, our righteousness, it's like a filthy rag. Now, the, the, the word picture that's being used there is interesting. And there are a couple of ways that the filthy rag was used. One of which was to describe the rag that was used to wrap up a leper's sores. If you've read much about leprosy or in the Bible, what it talks about it, you know that leprosy was a, an awful disease. That it, it caused these open, running sores to appear on people's body. And it kind of spread all over. And because of the way that they, they ran, they didn't just run a little bit. They, they apparently like pulled and would drip. And so in order to, to keep it to a minimum about how, how nasty it would be around them, they would wrap themselves up with these bandages, these, these rags. And they would keep the rags on these sores until their sores seeped through and began to run through the rag. And at that point, they would take the rags off and they would burn them. Because the rag had been so defiled, it had been so, it really filled with a disease that it, that it could not be cleansed for use ever again. It was beyond use. They just took them and they burned them. And God, through Isaiah, God says, that's what our good deeds are like naturally. Now, you and I, we, we can't imagine even touching a rag like that, can we? I mean, that would be disgusting. Much less, we wouldn't pick it up and be like, look what I did. Look how awesome I am. And yet, the picture is that when we try to say, look at what I've done and look at the good things I've, I've done in my life. Look how good I am. That in God's sight, it's like we're lifting up a, a filthy, putrid rag and saying, "Woo, I'm awesome. Our goodness, naturally, is no good. Naturally, we, we have no real goodness. Now, we would say, man, that seems, that seems like a harsh view of humanity, right? I mean, come on. How is it possible that, that every person on the planet, the best they can do on their own is, is filthy, putrid rags? How is that even possible? To understand how that's possible, we have to examine what the Bible says about sin. Now, the Bible says that all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And if all have sinned, that means you and that means me, then we need to know what sin is, don't we? Because truth be told, in, in my natural state, I may not feel like a sinner. I may not feel that my good deeds are a filthy rag. And so, but if you're going to tell me that I've sinned, 
You better lay it on me what that is so that I can compare it and make sure it's not just your opinion and your idea. So sin, according to Scripture, sin is a violation of God's law. John says everyone who commits sin breaks the law. Sin is the breaking of the law. That's it. See, when it comes to sin, when it comes to goodness and badness, there is a standard. There is an, an absolute standard. And it doesn't change for you. It doesn't change for me. It is, it is one standard that, that all people, in all places, at all times, are held to. And that standard is God's law, as seen in the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, we're probably familiar with them. And it's easy to think we've done pretty well at keeping the commandments. I, I even read an article by an atheist, uh, Penn Gillette, last year, year before, where he wrote an article about how good a Christian he was as an atheist because he had kept all the Ten Commandments. It's awesome. He would kept all the commandments. But I wonder, is that even really possible? Right? Because I read his explanation of how he did it, and I'm not sure it was consistent with what was meant in Scripture. He tended to define each of the commandments in the way that, that he wanted them to be. And that's kind of what we would do, too, if left to ourselves. So I want us this morning, we're going to go through the Ten Commandments quickly-ish and look at what they say and, and what they mean to see if, in fact, we're good without God or if our righteousness is indeed as filthy rags. So the first commandment. She'll have no other gods before me. On the surface, that seems pretty easy. Never worshipped Baal. Never prayed to Allah. Done. That, that's how Pendulette defined it. However, having no other gods before me, it means more than just not worshipping any god at all. Because that was his interpretation. He was always been an atheist. To have no other gods before me, it, the idea really is that, that God has been the priority in our lives. Right? Not just in my words, God is my number one. But my, my thoughts and my attitudes and my actions and my reactions all back this up. That at every moment of my life, every day of the week, from birth to death, God has been the number one priority in all that I have done. And if God has not been the number one priority in all that, that you and I have done, every moment of our lives from birth to death, we have indeed sinned. We have violated God's standard. And that brings a problem with our goodness. Well, the next one. She will make for yourself no Carved image. Again, on the surface, how easy is that? I've never prayed to a golden idol. I've never prayed to a, a wooden idol. Ah, but idolatry. It's more than bowing before an actual image. Idolatry is all about worshiping the right God in the right way. You know, when Aaron made the golden calf and presented it to Israel, he didn't say, Behold the cow God. He said, Behold, O Israel, your God, which has led you out of slavery. 
If we have ever held a, a wrong idea about who God was and what God was like, then we've violated this command. We had, at one point, we had had an idol. Or another thing about an idol is something that we give preeminence to. Whatever we are most devoted to, that is an idol in our lives. And if I am more devoted to a person than I am to God, that's idolatry. If I'm more devoted to success than I am to God, that's idolatry. If I'm more devoted to pleasure than I am to God, that is idolatry. If I'm more devoted to a sports team than I am to God, that's idolatry. You see, God must have, I must never have, have created an image of what God is like that was not consistent with Scripture. And I must never have put anyone or anything ahead of God and said, this is the focus of my life. Because if I had, I am guilty of idolatry and I've sinned and, and that makes a problem with me being good without God. Shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God takes his name like really, really seriously. To take God's name in vain involves several things. First, there is using God's name as a curse word. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. At the same time, that's not all that it is. If we use the Lord's name flippantly, that is taking God's name in vain. If we do something that causes people to, to mock God, if we do something that brings shame to God's name, that is taking God's name in vain. So if at any point in my life or your life, we have used the Lord's name as a curse word, we've taken his name in vain, we have sinned and there's a problem with our righteousness. If at any point in our lives, something we have personally said or done has caused others to think less of God, then we have taken God's name in vain. And there is a problem with our goodness. The next one is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The idea there is one day a week set aside for the Lord to worship him, to praise him, study his word. Have you had one day a week set aside for God every week of your life? If not, you have violated the Sabbath. Not kept it holy. And you have sinned. Honor your father and your mother. Carries with it the idea in part of obedience. Do what they say. But it was more than that. It meant to do anything that belittled or dishonored your parents. So, again, if you have ever done anything that besmirched your parents' name in the community or around the neighborhood... You have not honored your father and your mother. If your father and mother have told you to do something that was a not not a sinful command, clean your room and you didn't do it, then you have not honored your father and your mother. If an action you have taken has made light of your parents, belittled them in some way, like they were talking to you on the phone and they said you need to be in by 10, you went, then you have not honored your father and your mother. You have dishonored them and you have sinned. And there's a problem with your goodness. Shall not murder. Finally, an easy one, right? I mean, I ain't never killed nobody. 
till you get to Jesus. And Jesus says that the spirit of the command is not to act in anger. So if I've ever been angry at someone without cause and, and belittled them because of that, mm, I've broken that command. If I've ever despised someone in my heart or in my words, that, that's a part of the spirit of the, the command. So if you've killed somebody, you're a murderer. There's a problem with your goodness. But if you've despised someone, say someone who disagrees with you politically, then you've sinned, you've violated God's law, and there's a, a problem with your righteousness. Shall not commit adultery. The big thing is be faithful to your spouse. But Jesus again tightens this one up and says, if you lust, you violated this commandment, the spirit of the commandment. And so, to keep this commandment means first that you must be, if you're married, you must have always been faithful to your spouse. But not just physically, mentally as well. Uh, you, you must have only had sex with your spouse. Sex outside the bonds of marriage would be considered fornication and thus a sin. If you have looked at pornography, probably read a romance novel, if you have ever had lustful fantasies about someone you are not married to, you have violated the spirit of this commandment. You've sinned. And there's a problem with your goodness. Shall not steal. If you've ever taken anything that wasn't yours. Now, it matter the size. A grape at Walmart. piece of candy. doesn't have to be huge. But if you've taken something that wasn't yours, it's stolen. You've sinned. And there's a problem with your own goodness. Shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The broadest application of this is not to lie about someone. Not necessarily to just not lie, period, but not to lie about someone. So have you ever, have you ever passed on gossip that you weren't sure was true? Probably have borne false witness. Have you ever knowingly said something about someone that wasn't true. You have borne false witness. And you have sinned. And there is a problem with your natural goodness. Then the last one is, you shall not covet. Covet is a, a burning desire to have more. It's a burning desire to have something you do not possess. And it can be anything. It can be looks. It can be money. It can be stuff. In the context of Exodus, it even has to do with people. So if you have ever said, I want what they have, you've coveted. And you've sinned. And in doing so, there's a problem with your natural goodness. Now, when we think about this, it's important to understand it completely, right? For the law, being good according to the law, it's kind of a pass or fail kind of thing. God doesn't grade on a curve. So if you kept nine out of ten, but you broke one, you still failed. You didn't score a 90 and so you're good enough. You got an F and you failed. 
And in order to get all ten, it's not a matter of, you know, on Tuesday the 23rd, I did all ten of those perfectly. Sweet. Now, it is from the day I was born to the day Jesus calls me home, I have perfectly kept all ten. Right? At no time in my life could I have ever violated one of these commands in the least of the ways. Because if I have violated any command at any time in my life, no matter how big or how small I may judge it to be, I've sinned. And I'm, I'm guilty. And I have no goodness, no righteousness of my own to speak of. And what this leaves us with is an honesty that says, I I have broken God's law. I have not been good. And we see from this that it's not dependent upon our, our feelings. You know, because it doesn't matter if you feel like you're good or not. And it doesn't matter if you feel like you're guilty or not. Because guilty, according to, to God's economy of violating His law, it's not a matter of feelings. God doesn't care about your feelings. Instead, it's a matter of being legitimately, judicially guilty. If you have violated God's law, you are guilty. Regardless of how you feel about it. If you have violated God's law, your righteousness, your goodness is as filthy rags, no matter how you feel about it. If you have violated God's law, you are not good enough to go to heaven. No matter how you may feel about it. So the myth is busted. Because no one can keep the commandments. We've, we've all violated them. How does this myth make us miserable? The myth makes us miserable through fear and uncertainty. How can you ever... Be sure you're good enough if it's about being good enough. I mean, maybe we, we look and we see Bob, our co-worker. Bob's a sorry Muldoon. I'm better than Bob, so I'm good. Great. But gosh, Bob's not the standard. God's law is the standard. And compared to that, not so much. Or, or I have a good day. Right? I mean, today, I didn't cuss anyone out at Walmart. Oh, that was awesome. Today, when that person pulled out in front of me, I just said, bless them, Lord, and kind of let it go by. Woo! Good. Today, I didn't covet. And today, I didn't lust. And today, I didn't gossip. Today, I'm good. But tomorrow, tomorrow, my coffee maker doesn't work. And I don't get the coffee before I go. It's already starting my day off bad and boding well for everyone else I encounter. Today, when the person pulls out in front of me, I let them know how I feel. Today, I have that cussing fit. Today, I lust. Today, I gossip. Today, I just generally act like a horrendous individual. Now, yesterday, I was good. Today, shoot. Today, I'm going to hell. And that is the roller coaster that you ride 
when you think that good people go to heaven. On days that you're good, you're fine. On days that you're bad, you're not. If you can find someone you're better than, you're okay. But when someone's better than you, gosh, there I go with no, no certainty again. And it adds misery upon misery about wondering where I'll spend eternity because I'll never know for sure if my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds until I die. So what's the truth that sets us free? The truth that sets us free is that believing people, not good people, go to heaven. Believing people, not good people, go to heaven. The truth that sets us free is all about Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 3, page 811. Jesus was a master teacher who took every opportunity he was given to tell people about the salvation he came to provide. And what we're going to look at in John chapter 3, we get an insight into Jesus' teaching about this. It says in verse 1 that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of of the Jews. Now let me stop there and talk about Nicodemus. Because there's a lot in that little that little verse that tells us about who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That means he was very very religious. As a very religious Pharisee, Nicodemus was devoted to the law of God. Theoretically, Pharisees were separated unto the law of God, not to do anything Normal or common, but just to live and fulfill the law of God. As a ruler of the Pharisees, he was very good at what he did. He was likely a member of the 70-person Sanhedrin. He was, he was the kind of neighbor you wanted. But from what we can tell, Nicodemus would have been a good person. He would have been good morally. The law required him to, to do certain good things. He would have been Kind in a, in a way, because the law required him to be generous and help the poor. He would have been a, a good husband because the law required him to love his wife and to, to treat her a certain way. And he would have been a good dad because the law required him to raise his children to be a, a part of their lives. By any measure that we would have, Nicodemus would be a good person. And he comes to Jesus, and look at what Jesus says to him in verse 5. Most assuredly, I say... I'm sorry, verse 3. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this would have been shocking to Nicodemus. As a Jew, just being a Jew, he would have been good enough and he would have been part of the kingdom. Being a Pharisee, he would be that much closer. But the idea in the Jewish world that if only two people were going to go to be with God, a Pharisee would be one of them. And Nicodemus is told here that despite how religious he is, despite how good he is, it's not good enough. That as he is, he has no part in the kingdom of God. The only way to have a part in the kingdom of God 
as if he is born again. What did Nicodemus need to do to be born again? Look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In order for Nicodemus to be born again, to enter the kingdom, to go to heaven, he would have to believe on Jesus Christ. And if he didn't believe on Jesus Christ, he would perish. Now the word perish, it means just what it sounds like. Die. In the context that Jesus uses it, though, it means more than die physically. It means to die spiritually. You could easily say that what Jesus is saying here is that unless one believed in him, they will go to hell. And Jesus said that he came into the world to save us from that fate. He said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The world through him might be saved. See, Jesus' purpose was to save us from perishing. It was to make it so that we could, in fact, go to heaven. That was the, the whole point of his life. Like Nicodemus, we're not good enough on our own. Our, our religious experiences aren't enough. Our, our morals aren't enough. Our being good citizens. None of, that is, none of that is enough. What it requires for us to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, to, to go to heaven, so that we would be born again. And in order to be born again, we must make the intentional decision to believe in Jesus. See, he came and he lived a, a perfect life. He did what you and I have not done. He, he kept the law perfectly. The spirit of the law and the letter of the law, there was not a part of it that Jesus ever violated. Jesus was good. He was righteous. His righteousness was not as filthy rags. Despite the fact that Jesus was good, he died a sinner's death. He, he died in our place. See, his death on the cross, it, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a surprise. The reason he came was to, to pay the penalty that our sins had earned. To take the wages that you and I have earned and after, after taking all of God's wrath against all of our sin, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost and he was buried and he laid in the tomb for three days. And then he rose from the dead to prove that all that he had said was true and that he, he could forgive sins. He could save us from perishing if we believed. See, that's the key. While salvation is available to everyone, it's not automatic for anyone. The only people who will ever be saved, who will ever be saved from perishing, who will ever go to heaven, are those who intentionally and willfully believe in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is so important to salvation that twice in this chapter we are told that everything rises and falls on Him. Look at verse 18. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So perish, that's condemnation. Those who are perishing are condemned. But those who believe, they are not condemned. Those who believe on Jesus have been saved from condemnation. Now, I like the rest of the verse, though. But he who does not believe is condemned. And and you should underline the word already. Right? Already. The person who does not believe in Jesus is, is already, is at this time. No matter what they've done. No matter how good they feel they've been. No matter what kind of neighbor they are. What kind of spouse they are. What kind of kid they are. If they have not believed in Jesus, they are already condemned. Why? Because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They're not condemned because they haven't done enough good deeds. They aren't condemned because they haven't been to church enough times. They aren't condemned because they didn't work hard enough. They are condemned because they have not believed on Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 36. Of John 3. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Again, the contrast. There is a day of wrath coming. God will Dish out the wages of sin at some point. And those who have believed in Jesus, they have everlasting life. They are freed from the wrath to come. But those who have not believed, God's wrath, it abides on them. Now, the picture of God's wrath abiding on an unbeliever should not go out of our minds quickly. Because the picture is that it is poised to strike. The picture is that God's wrath is hanging over their head and over their life. And at some point, that wrath will fall. And they will face the judgment to come. You see, the unbeliever, they're not alright. They're not going to be okay. They're not good enough. The wrath of God is hovering over their life. And unless they believe, God will take them in His wrath. And they will experience His wrath for all of eternity. And that's true for you if you've never believed in Jesus. And that's true for our loved ones who have never believed in Jesus. It is believing people, not good people, not Rosses that go to heaven. Believers in Jesus Christ go to heaven. The end. Doesn't matter what our family name is. Doesn't matter if we're Americans or not. Doesn't matter about anything. Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. Have they believed in Jesus? That is the defining issue. Those who have believed in Jesus are saved from the wrath to come. 
Those who have not believed in Jesus, regardless of anything else, they are they have the wrath of God hanging over them unless they repent. They will absolutely be destroyed by God's wrath. Now, how does this truth that believing people and not good people go to heaven? How does this truth set us free? It sets believers free because it enables us to live confidently in our salvation and our relationship with Jesus Christ. This is one of my very favorite verses in all of the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Very similar to what Jesus said about those who believe are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned. The believer in Jesus Christ is free from condemnation. Not because they're good. Not because they've squared their lives away. Not because they're, they're better than someone else. Believers in Jesus Christ are freed from condemnation because of Jesus Christ. As a believer in Jesus Christ, His righteousness has been put into your account. And when God looks at you as a believer in Jesus Christ, He doesn't see you in light of the mistakes you've made, the sins you've committed, the rebellion in your life. He sees you in light of the righteousness that Jesus Christ has given you. And so there is no condemnation for you. The believer in Jesus Christ will never, no never, be condemned as a sinner. Now does that mean that we will never sin? Right? I mean, there's no condemnation. Does that mean I'll never, ever sin? That once I truly believe in Jesus, I will be super duper squared away and never, ever Honk at the person who cuts me off again. Nope. That is not what it means at all. We will live in a world that appeals to our sinful nature. The world, the flesh, and the devil will always be pulling at our lives. We will always struggle to fight the good fight of faith. Some days we will win. But unfortunately, some days we will lose. Now, when I lose my battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I sin. Not a mistake, not an accident, but I, I sin. Does that sin move me from a state of grace to condemnation? Do I move from salvation to condemnation because of the sin that I've committed? The answer to that is no. 1 John 2.1 says, that all of these things are written that you may not sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins. Our righteousness is never, ever built upon our goodness. You and I, we are never righteous on our own at no point in our lives. From start to finish, our righteousness is built upon Jesus Christ and who He is and what He has done and our connection to Him through faith. When we make it to heaven as believers, we will not stand before the Lord and say, we did it, you and me. You helped me in the rough times, but boy, I sucked it up and I knuckled it under and I did it. When we get to heaven, it's going to be 
You did it. You saved me. You kept me. You forgave me. You didn't give up on me. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is an amazing amount of freedom in that. There is a, an unbelievably liberating freedom to know that I am free from condemnation. That at no point will hell be my home because Jesus has taken that off the table and now I'm saved. Now I have eternal life. Now I am free from condemnation. I'm free to love Jesus. I'm free to enjoy my relationship with Him. I'm free not to be afraid that He's going to smack me down every time I blow it. I'm free not to believe I'm walking a tightrope over hell and anything I do that's wrong is instantly going to send me careening into hell. I'm just free to live in the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. The good times and in the bad times. When I do what I should and when I don't do what I should. My friend, there is freedom in believing in Jesus Christ that you will not find in trying to be good enough to go to heaven. If you want the truth that sets you free, then you must let go of the myth that you will ever be good enough to get to heaven. And you must embrace the truth that believing people not good people, go to heaven and choose to believe in Jesus Christ this day. Let's 